This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and psychiatrist Jody Foster discusses her new book, The Schmuck in My Office. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal explores whether publishing has a left-wing bias. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. I hear that the bestseller list has a right-wing bias, Mark. Well, it looks like our number one right here is Bill O'Reilly. Old on, school. On the nonfiction list. On the nonfiction list, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Life in the Sane Lane is the subtitle. This is, uh, according to the publicity material here, it's a values thing, quoting the anti-old-school forces believe the traditional way of looking at life is oppressive, not inclusive. The old-school may harbor microaggressions. Therefore, old-school philosophy must be diminished, and Bill O'Reilly is, I guess, going to put readers on that sane lane. I uh, see. So, uh, and then we have number two, uh, health books. So, so we've been seeing a lot of diet health. This is the Hashimoto's Protocol, a 90-day plan for reversing thyroid symptoms and getting your life back by Isabella Wentz. And um, this is exactly that. It's just a plan to address uh, the symptoms and to address Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And that's at number two. Number three uh, is kind of a how-to book. is How to Be the Boss, B-A-W-S-E, A Guide to Conquering Life. This is by uh, Lily Singh, and uh, she's a YouTube sensation. She won the 2017 People's Choice Award for a favorite YouTube star. And uh, this is the... Uh, what she says is the uh, the definitive guide to being a boss, which is someone who exudes confidence and hustles relentlessly. So I met her at a uh, publicity event, a book event, and uh, she can really, I, it seems like she could really draw readers in, especially uh, those who watch her on YouTube. Uh, number nine, The Cubs Way, The Zen of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Curse by Tom Verducci. And this is, uh, we don't have a review of this, but uh, the publicity says it took 108 years, but it really happened. The Chicago Cubs were once again the World Series champions. And uh, this this is basically talking about uh, how that team became a champion after 108 years. At number 23, we have a biography uh, by John A. Farrell called Richard Nixon, The Life. It's, it's a, a starred review. Journalist and biographer Farrell, uh, he, we say he uh, skillfully revisits Richard Nixon's long political career in this history of American politics in the post-war period through his resignation as president in 1974. We say that Farrell makes the most of his material to offer insights and well-considered opinions about each of the historic events that he covers. So... Watergate, uh, the 1973 Paris Peace Accords, and Vietnam War. So, uh, covers it all. Starred review at number 23. At number 25, uh, The Rules Do Not Apply by Ariel Levy. In this dark and absorbing memoir, Levy, a staff writer for The New Yorker, uh, recounts her complicated life and with stunning clarity reveals that the best laid plans can be sidetracked. 
and um, number 25, really nice review, and uh, a powerful memoir. And that's it. Well, over on the fiction hardcover list, we only have three new books. And number one is The Black Book by James Patterson and David Ellis. No surprise that Patterson's at the top of the bestseller list. Always rockets right there. 40,000 copies sold. Uh, We give this a starred review, which Patterson doesn't earn from us too often, say that this is a brilliantly twisty fourth collaboration with Ellis, uh, in which Detective Patty Harney of the Chicago PD visits a horrific crime scene at a luxury condo uh, where there are two dead people, one a police detective and one an assistant state attorney, uh, and one who's injured but survived, which is homicide detective Billy Harney, Patty's twin brother. Uh, Everything is stacked against Billy, who needs an ingenious solution to escape a verdict of murder, and many readers will agree with Patterson that this is the best book he's written in 25 years. I love that James Patterson blurbs his own books. (laughs) <laughs> like if you pick up the book, there's a quote from James Patterson on the cover that says, this is the You're best kidding. book I've written in 25 years. It's delightful. It's just like, <laughs> it, it's just, it's just a thing of that beauty. Great. <laughs> um, but you know, if you're a big James Patterson fan, you really want to listen to him about which right. books you should yeah, be reading. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so that's at number one. At number eight is The Women in the Castle <laughs> by Jessica Shattuck. Uh, the, uh, she explores the lives of three widows at the tail end of World War II in this redemption tale. We say in our review that the quotidian focus of the story falling on the period just after the war provides a unique glimpse into what the average German was and was not aware of during World War II's darkest months. And Shaddock's own German heritage and knack for historical details add to the realism of the tale. This is a beautiful story of survival, love, and forgiveness. Great. And that's at number eight. And finally, down at number 23, The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley by Hannah Tinty. We also gave this a starred review, um, so that this uh, seamlessly transposing classical myth into a quintessentially American landscape and marrying taut suspense with dreamy lyricism And Tinty's beautifully intricate second novel is well worth the wait since 2008's The Good Thief. And uh, we say that this is a convincingly redemptive and celebratory novel, an affirmation of the way that heroism and human fallibility coexist. And uh, so that's a great rave review and uh, very nice to see that up there on the bestseller list. And that's what we've got on the fiction side. Sounds good, though. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jody Foster tells us how to deal with the schmuck in your office and what to do if it's you. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Jody Foster here with us. Her new book is The Schmuck in My Office. Hi, Jody. So glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. So it's very nice to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit about the, the guiding principle of this book. Who is the schmuck in the office, and what do we do when we meet one? So um, the basic premise of the book is that disruptive people can be anywhere and everywhere, anytime we interact. And conflict comes in endless shapes and sizes, and anytime you put two people together, you have the potential for conflict. And one disruptive character can infect a team and even an entire workplace. Um, and the problem is that conflicts take root as people avoid direct approaches to uncomfortable topics because people generally don't want to confront things directly. And managers often wait way too long to intervene, not just managers, really everybody. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they become frustrated and, and feel increasingly angry and ineffectual with time. And they label people who are just being themselves 
just bringing their personalities to work with them. They label them jerks and they label them schmucks. And so the basic premise of the book is to try to help people understand um, the types of people who have interpersonal conflict and take a bit of a more empathic posture toward them. Um, think about what's driving the anxiety that makes them behave in a certain way and help them with interventions that might be helpful. So I was going to ask about this this labeling of the schmuck as opposed to talking about behaviors. Yeah. So you know what's what's your approach there? So um, the the name of the book is is uh, it, it came to me because the vast majority of the consults that come to me, quite literally, I pick up the phone and what I hear on the other end is, Jody, I should have called you 10 years ago. I have this jerk in my department. I have this schmuck in my office. Um, and they uh, are so angry that people just didn't stop acting in the way that's bothering them. And what happens is that without intervening with the behavior, the people don't know, oftentimes, they don't know that they're upsetting mm. other people. Oh, wow. And so they don't know they're being upsetting. What is stopping people from confronting a schmuck? Uh, is it because it's in a workplace and they may feel that it's not appropriate? Well, I mean, I'm sure some people know that they're being upsetting and aggressive. I guess the, the important thing is the reason why they're doing it. Um, and uh, your question was, why is it happening? Why does it continue? I, th I think that it's incredibly uncomfortable for people to directly say, I don't like what you're doing. I like to um, uh, sort of compare this to um, when my little boy was in pre-K and uh, he might have a conflict on the playground and he would run to his teacher and say, you know, so-and-so did so-and-so to me. And the teacher would turn him right around and send him out and say, go tell him you don't like that, mm. you know, and we lose that as we get older. We just stop doing it. And if we would just go back to being direct and saying what you just did wasn't okay with me, then at least the person knows sort of right then and there or soon thereafter. And, and uh, a, an understanding can move forward. What you're describing sounds like something that happens in every possible set of more than one person, not just in the office. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of you know. Well, I hate it when your mother does this. Absolutely. In, in between a, yeah. a married couple, and it, well, you know, why don't you tell my mother not to send you those gifts you don't like anymore? <laughs> oh well, I wouldn't want to get up in her face yeah. about it. You know. So um, why focus on the office and what makes office situations um, kind of their own thing? It's a great question because um, I actually struggled with what to focus on. I joke a lot that my next book is going to be The Schmuck in My Bedroom because, you know, the fact is that, as I mentioned before, when you put any two people together, the potential for conflict exists. And so it really isn't just about the office. It's about absolutely anywhere. Why did I pick the office? Because um, I figured that that would be a good place to begin to introduce these ideas to people. I see my job as uh, leading horses to water. Um, I can't make everybody drink, but um, between the content of the book and the um, uh, sort of uh, audacious title, I'm hoping that people will say, hey, you know, I'm going to pick this up and look at this, and I'm going to bring potentially some thought or some knowledge to people who otherwise may not have gone there. And there's also the advantage that workplaces have actual written down rules and their applicable laws and you know you're not just dealing with social mores does that does that help or does it hinder well so you would hope i mean not every workplace does have a good set of rules and particularly um you know uh, as as you know in the book uh, i've defined 10 characters who sort of barring major 
physical or mental illness are, from my experience, the 10 types who get into trouble. And particularly with the swindler um, character, if you don't have really clear rules and policies, you can get into some real trouble. And so I think it depends on how a company uses their rules, um, because it can be extremely helpful. I suppose it can be limiting. Mm. But um, but again, the ability to define the rules of engagement and uh, clarify the playing field for people is always helpful. You had talked about your son who is in pre-K and how teachers would handle conflicts. And I coach uh, fifth and sixth graders in hockey. And to try and uh, avoid bullying or someone, you know, acting out, we say, look, there's always going to be a couple, a jerk or two in the locker room. And if you look around and you don't see who that jerk is, the chances are it's you. So think <laughs> about your behavior whenever you come here. And so I, I was going to ask, how do we identify the, the schmucks? What kind of what kinds of schmucks are there? You list a few of them in your book. Well, um, there are uh, again in the world according to me, there are these ten types. And um, just because I wanted to drive home the point that these are not psychiatric diagnoses, the people we work with are not ill. They're they're they just have texture and personality and and uh, traits, and they bring these traits to work with them. So um, uh, there's definitely a diagnostic correlate to each one of these uh, types, but but they are by no means meant uh, for diagnosed purposes. So um, the types are Narcissus, who would be the egocentric, my way of the highway type, uh, the Venus flytrap, who would be the very seductive character who sort of draws you in, but is very um, sort of intense and unstable and eventually spits you out. <laughs> The swindler, who is uh, someone with a, a, a criminal or rule-breaking tendency. The bean counter, who uh, would be the obsessive micromanager. The distracted, who's the person who just kind of can't manage their time and get things off their desk. Um, Mr. Hyde would be somebody who is um, uh, suffering from uh, some sort of addiction problem. You hire mm. Dr. Jekyll, but um, mm. unfortunately they become Mr. Hyde. The lost, another very sad character, the uh, type who might be having cognitive decline at work and starting to make mistakes and, and uh, um, uh, um, uh, get into trouble that way. The robotic would be um, the kind of person who we would colloquially say exists, quote-unquote, on the spectrum, but somebody who has trouble um, uh, handling interpersonal interactions and nuance. Uh, the eccentric would be somebody um, who has sort of odd or magical beliefs, but we just sort of find them to be weird. Um, and then the suspicion, the suspicious would be the person who has a, a more paranoid take on, on the world. I want to talk about a couple of them, but let's talk about the swindler. You had mentioned the swindler before. Okay. How to address the swindler? So the thing about the swindler is that they are um, deeply charming, but they have often hard, a hard-to-detect core of deceit and manipulation. The, the basic upshot of what I'm going to say is the best way to handle the swindler is to not let them in in the first place if you possibly mm. can. Um, this person has no regard for rules or for others. Um, he or she knows exactly what they're doing as they break rules and laws. They are arrogant and entitled. They cut corners. They fall short on tasks. Um, and this is in the realm of sociopathy, and sociopathy falls on a spectrum, and, and it goes from, you know, somebody who just sort of, you know, uh, uh, jaywalks to a serial killer. Um, 
and they are differentiated by the severity of rule breaking, the depth of the immorality, um, the absence of concern for others, and the skill at manipulation. So, as I said, um, what you want to do, if you can, is avoid hiring the swindler by talking to their references, conduct background checks, look for warning signs during the interview, or on their resume. The fact is that if you're talking to someone and he seems too good to be true, you, you need to be suspicious and make sure that he's not too good to be true. You need to develop and disseminate with human resources a specific code of conduct handbook to your point and reward adherence to it. Uh, this prevents the swindler from pleading ignorance to acceptable behavior and dissuades potential copycat swindling. You have to prevent the swindler from rising in the ranks by evaluating performance based on contribution to the company over personal success. Um, sanctions against rule violations should be consistently and uniformly enforced. This is the type of person, if they see an in, they're going to go after it. Ideally, the swindler should be removed from the company when detected, um, and confronting the swindler is best done with institutional support and clear documentation of inappropriate behaviors. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're unable to remove the swindler from your office, like if, they're, if, if he or she's your boss, sometimes the best option is to remove yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, I, I really I want to poke at this distinction between behavior and, and labeling, because it sounds like, you know, in some cases, the type of behavior you're talking about can be mitigated. But this is one of those cases where it can't. So how do you differentiate between someone who is you know, where you say the best option is to not hire them or to fire them um, and someone who can be worked with, can be brought around, can be can come to realize, oh, the reason people are having trouble working with me is because I do X, Y, Z, but if I did A, B, C instead, things would go better. Yeah, so the thing is, I don't think I, I, I don't, I don't ever want to say can't. Hmm. Um, you know, our personalities tend to be very fixed by the time we become adults. And I think that, um, uh, you know, for many of us, like those of us who choose to do self-exploration and therapy or things like that, we find parts of ourselves that we don't like and that we want to change. And I think that um, interacting at work and intervening with someone who's had a problem can be sort of um, uh, a lightning rod for some of those changes and really positive. But there are those people who just like the way that they are, even if we think it's dysfunctional, and they have no intention of changing. And that's when you get into the area of, well, your choices are to separate them from the company or to figure out a sandbox that they can play in. And that's where the behaviors very much come in. I I don't advocate labeling. What I'm suggesting is that we categorize sort of themes of what we see so that we can understand, you know, again, what's driving somebody and how to work with them. But when somebody doesn't have insight into uh, their own behavior, and even though it's, you know, clearly counter culture or whatever, the only thing you can really do is set limits and say, you cannot do X, Y, or Z here, because if you do, you can't be here. And that's very helpful. So a lot of people are sent to me and say, you know, fix this person. And by the way, fix them over the weekend. And I like him back at work on Monday. (laughs) And, you know, again, these take a life, takes a life. You can't even diagnose a personality disorder in psychiatry until someone's 18 years old. It takes a lifetime Mm. to form these characters. So, like I said, rules of engagement, clarifying the playing field. These are the important things to make. And it's work functional. It's like the the joke, the light bulb joke about therapists. The light bulb has to want to change. Absolutely, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, so, 
You also, Mark mentioned um, that sometimes if you can't identify the jerk in the locker room or the schmuck in the office, it might be you. What do you do if it's you? <laughs> what do you do if you look around and you realize the thing all of my problems have in common is me? Well, I guess, you know, I would be of the perspective, uh, and I guess that's because of, you know, what I do for a living, that if you have that aha moment, you're a very lucky person because it's a, it's sort of a, um, uh, a roadmap to improve yourself and your life. So if in workplace after workplace after workplace, I can't get along with people, or I think everyone around me is a fool or an idiot or uh, stupid or whatever it is, and I have the wherewithal to stop and say, wait a second, maybe it's me, and you know, turn the mirror onto myself. Well, that is, well, two things. It's a great time to reevaluate the culture that you're sitting in, because mm -hmm. maybe you're just misplaced. Maybe everyone around you is a fool, you know, for what you, you know, are, are wanting to do with, with your life. Or maybe it points to some character issues or some uh, dynamics that you really need to work on. So I would hope that, and, you know, there's a, uh, a section at the end of the book called Am I the Schmuck in My Office? And I would hope that uh, if and when you came to the conclusion that you were the person who was causing these issues, that you would take some steps to to intervene with yourself. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jody Foster, author of The Schmuck in My Office. So how did this book idea come to you? That's a great story. So um, when I went to business school, um, I was the only psychiatrist in the class. And pretty quickly, uh, I realized that this was a, a huge commodity. Everybody was coming to me week after week after week with their interpersonal problems. Why is this guy doing this? Why is my wife acting like that? And um, I found that um, uh, having these conversations, which in my daily life in the psychiatry and psychology world, you know, we eat, drink, and sleep this. And in the business world, this was absolutely novel. And what were relatively straightforward um, interpretations for me were, were sort of life-changing for them. And it was so much fun. And so in business school, um, I developed a product to evaluate venture capital teams um, because the venture capital world tends to have a rigorous due diligence process, but it doesn't really include evaluating the people who they're investing in. And it was going quite well um, until the tech bubble burst, um, which sort of forced me to stay in medicine. And that was okay because I was um, promoted to chair of my department and everything was uh, uh, going along. And then in 2008, the Joint Commission on uh, the Accreditation of Hospitals put out a sentinel uh, notice and while it's really intuitive, it was earth-shaking for medicine. And the notice said that disruptive physician behavior is a patient safety and quality issue. Mm. And that every hospital has to develop a mode for intervening with disruptive physicians. And from that was born my disruptive physician program at Penn. Mm. And it became so successful at Penn that we began to offer it publicly. And then at one point, I had an alumni interview with Knowledge at Wharton uh, to talk about the program 
Within a week of that article, I had a cold call from an agent at William Morris, and he said, will you write a book about this for the lay public? And that's how it happened. Wow. So someone someone listened to this and said, <laughs> everybody needs this. Exactly. I would never have uh, woken up and said, I'm going to write a book today. <laughs> And that's interesting about the disruptive physicians. I mean, disruptive physicians, meaning those with, who are maybe narcissistic or those who don't treat support staff well or, or, or patients well. They fall in the same 10 types yeah. like everybody yeah. else. Um, so how did you end up going about the writing of this book since you said you would never have expected this and you weren't planning for it? Well, it's also a funny story. So I said, he said, will you write a book? And I said, I don't want to write a book. I'm not, I said, <laughs> I'm, I'm a clinician, I'm an administrator, but I'm not, you know, that's not what I do. And I said, plus, I realize I would never want to do research and history. I just don't want to do that. And he sa I said, if you want a book about the world according to me, sure, I'll write a few, you know, I'll write something for you. He goes, yeah, that's exactly what I want. So I said, to task, and I wrote, you know, uh, the beginnings of a proposal, and I sent it to him, and by then I was feeling pretty invested, and he read it, and um, he wrote back, and he said, you know, it's really good, but you know what it's missing, Jody? The history, the research, <laughs> and I said... <laughs> You're kidding me. You just did a 180 on me. And again, as luck would have it, I've had some very fortuitous uh, uh, experiences with this. As luck would have it, um, I was running an inpatient psychiatric unit at the time. And the uh, first year resident on the other team happened to be a professional writer who particularly loves research and history. And so I asked her if she would join me. Um, for that part. So the the uh, the book really is that I sort of provided the clinical and she provided the research and the history and she also kind of made it into a book, you know, because she knew how to do that kind of thing. So that's Michelle Joy. Yes, yes. A brilliant young woman. How did you work together? What was your working process like? Um, well, I work full time and she was a resident. Uh, so, um, you know, this book was written on napkins between meetings, basically. But we did it all remotely. We didn't, uh, we didn't spend uh, any time together sitting. I mean, uh, I, would, she, uh, I would write a clinical case. She would, uh, you know, edit in some uh, uh, research and history details, send it back to me. We would send it back and forth to each other. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. The other thing that was really cool about this is that um, I like to say that becoming a psychiatrist is like it's like a virus, you know, that you can't get rid of. I, you know, <laughs> I, I meet people and I want to I want to just sort of not think this way, but I'm constantly diagnosing and, you know, in my head. And um, and Michelle was just brand new into the field. And so she was she was she wasn't lost to the abyss. You know, she was still connected to the real world. And so it was really helpful to have me, you know, 30 years into the field with the bizarre language that I might use, and then her, who was still kind of normal. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, and so she was really able to help keep the language digestible for most people. And so uh, it, her bio, I just want to talk a little bit about Michelle, says she's a forensic psychologist. Or she's psychiatrist. psychiatrist. Yeah. What, what exactly is that? Oh, forensic psychiatrists are the, um, uh, they tend to do expert witness work or um, just um, the, the legal aspects of medicine. Right, yeah. right. So, so uh, she was probably able to lend a little bit of, uh, of her uh, knowledge to, to this as well from that aspect. Well, she wasn't. Um, she is only a forensic fellow this year. Oh, I see. Okay, got it. She finished her residency. Right. She was chief resident. Now she's yeah. a forensics fellow. 
So what's next for you? You mentioned maybe writing about the schmuck in my bedroom. Oh, I don't um, know. You know. Have have you been bitten by the writing bug? Did it did that grab you? You know, it's it's um it's it was kind of fun. I mean, now that it's over, you know, it's like having a baby. It's like, oh, you know, maybe I'll do that again. Um, but um, I I guess it depends how this does. You know, I uh, I already mentioned having a baby, but I've treated this book kind of the way I treated my pregnancy, which was with you know oblivion, and you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna know as little as I can and right. read as little as I can and hope that a wonderful baby happens at the end, and um, I I sort of treated the book this way, and then and then it hit me. Oh my God! I've been sort of under a rock for my entire career, and now I've exposed myself to the world. How 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 crazy a thing I just did! So I'm going to see how it goes. And um, give us a little bit more of a sense of uh, who the book is for. Uh, you know, is it for managers? Is it for individual people in the office? Who's going to benefit the most from this? So that's the thing. The book is for absolutely anybody. It's for anybody who works with anybody else. It's for anybody who interacts with anybody else. When I was in business school in my um, one of my classes, they said that the perfect business is is to find a product that everybody needs that they don't know that they need, like mm. a like a button or a keychain. And I feel like in many ways this this is my version of that. I've even referred back to this book um, to sort of see what some of the strategies are when I'm uh, in the middle of something. It's a very useful sort of field guide. And so it is for absolutely anybody. I mean, we have so many different ways to communicate now um, with, you know, emails and texting and on all, you know, everything so that everybody's capacity to interact with one another is, is, uh, is catered to their level of intimacy, but we still always have the potential for conflict. And so this is just of ubiquitous utility to anybody. Is there, uh, do, do you address uh, what happens when you're working with someone and you don't feel comfortable addressing that person, whether it's you're 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 too far into the Venus yeah. flytrap, or yeah. you've been swindled a little bit too much, or or even the narcissist who, no matter how much you might mention to him or her that the behavior is, is is not good, uh, there's no there's no change. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I advocate direct early intervention. But reality says that, you know, it's not like everybody has, has, is going to suddenly wake up after reading the book and say, I can do this. You know, what I'm hoping people will do is, is, you know, you take your comfort zone and I just want you to inch it forward a little bit. Just try to be a little bit more direct than you might have been before and collect some victories. And as you see that direct interaction is helpful, try it a little bit more. That said, there are people who really can't tolerate interventions. I, I myself recently had a situation where um, uh, someone was behaving in a very aggressive and insidious way with me, and it took me a couple of days, and I do this for a living, to say, wow, I think that person was bullying me. And, um, and I went back, and I, I mm. confronted it directly, and that uh, person just exploded. It was not, you know, the interaction was not a positive one. At the same time, I got so much information, you know, I understood where this person's you know, threshold was. And that informed our relationship moving forward, and now our relationship is great. So I, I also think that there is a role at some point when someone is, you know, completely uh, uh, impossible to, call, you know, call in human resources and management and intervene in those ways. But, you know, I'm just asking people to be aware, to try to have more positive uh, uh 
take on interventions and relationships to try to be more understanding, to not label people schmucks and jerks and things like that, and to just try to make it a, a better workplace for everybody. And do you address doing this within different power structures, like uh, if the secretary Boss, has, yeah. well, and not just that, but um, if a woman is in a company full of men who won't listen to her, or um, Twitter just exploded with the black women at work hashtag last week, where a lot of black women talked about being systematically ignored or treated as though um, they knew much less than they did, or they were worth much less than they are. Mm-hmm. So um, how does someone uh, grapple with a situation like like this or a colleague like this that may be informed by that like what if the narcissist is a racist narcissist or you know what if the swindler is trying to uh, swindle you out of your clothes and into his bed you know what what do you do with that right I mean I don't address um, these situations specifically because there's so many specific situations that I couldn't possibly and so I would just say that um, uh, regardless of what the various nuances and and uh, uh, um, traits that are in play um, to just approach it from a more general stance. And like I said, get your arms around the general major dynamics and themes and what might be driving them, and then attempt to use the strategies to to uh, get underneath them. It's, you know, people are not going to neatly fall into personality one, two, three. You know, there's going to be two and three in any one person. And so just look for themes and then, you know, uh, uh, try to take some, uh, an empathic posture toward the anxiety that's driving those themes. And then try to do something because doing something regardless, even with somebody who seems just awful, doing something is better than doing nothing. And um, what are some alternatives if the direct confrontation doesn't work? Um, if direct confrontation doesn't work, then like I said, um, uh, like I said, in the moment, a direct confrontation might not appear to work. Um, so you have to give it a little time because sometimes they work anyway. You didn't know it. Mm. Um, it's kind of like um, uh, in in a psychotherapy when you make an inter an, an interpretation and the patient says that's absolutely not what's going on, and then you know, six months later they say you know, and they say the exact same thing. So, <laughs> right. so I think that you know, b- before you um, uh, uh, claim defeat. Um, just give it a little time before you're certain that an intervention hasn't worked. But like I said, I mean, when if things escalate to a point where you can't uh, manage it yourself, that's when you have to call in the structure of the workplace and, and get help with it. Are people still coming to you at your current job and asking advice for various people in the office? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that was happening before this book. Yeah, <laughs> And how has it how has it been for you being a little bit more in the spotlight, um, doing interviews and promoting the book? It's a bit surreal. I I will admit um, the uh, you know I've been at at uh, Penn for twenty eight years. It's it's uh, it was my first job, and so I've, I'm still sort of in an iteration of my first job. And so the idea of being able to do different things is really very exciting. So even though it's a little scary, it's uh, really quite fun. We've been talking with Jody Foster. You can find her book, The Schmuck in My Office, in stores right now. Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about politics and publishing. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to discuss whether publishing can really represent the whole political spectrum. <laughs> is that <laughs> yeah. it? Uh, that's it a little bit. Um, we, um, we've we been talking uh, in the news department a lot lately about just what it's like to be working on conservative books, um, to be working with conservative authors at this time. And we've really been talking about it since the election, just because I think what you s- may see in publishing, um, you know, you see in the rest of the country, which is, I think, what used to be kind of political disagreements have gotten um, more intense, maybe more personal. And people have started to say it's not simply that they disagree with somebody, but that somebody's wrong or that something maybe shouldn't happen. Um, and I think you're seeing these schisms in the media, or, you know, at large. And, you know, this irony of the media, I think, has been criticized for leaning left, especially the the New York media. And, you know, a lot of things have been said that they're not in touch with the the populace at large, um, given, you know, how many people voted for Donald Trump and how many conservatives there are in the country. Right. So um, we sort of wanted to talk to people in publishing about how they feel about this. And and we did sort of use what happened recently with um, the cancellation of Milo Yiannopoulos' book at Simon & Schuster as as a jumping off point. And we talked to people pretty much very few people wanted to talk to us on the record. So it was difficult Hmm. uh, to find people who even wanted to discuss it. Um, And Simon and Schuster really hasn't spoken publicly about what happened and why they ultimately decided to cancel the book aside from the statement they issued at the time. Um, So it has to be said, we don't actually know what happened. Um, I mean, the presumption is, you know, there, there was an outcry from the public certainly, but there was also, and I think this is, this is really the difference um, in this situation, maybe than in previous situations where books have been canceled after maybe a scandal has erupted for the author or just people say you shouldn't publish this book. And I think, you know, one thing that happened here that was interesting is Simon & Schuster, I think over 100 authors wrote to Carolyn Reedy, who's the CEO of Simon & Schuster, saying, you know, we don't want you publishing this book. And I believe the insinuation was that, you know, we might take our own books elsewhere. Um, Certainly Roxanne Gay came out publicly and said that and did ultimately um, withdraw her book from a Simon & Schuster imprint. But, um, you know, that's a different thing that's happened um, to have a a publisher's author say, you know, we don't want to be associated with you if you publish this author. So, you know, we went to people and said, is, you know, is this something that you find concerning? You know, is it, is it something that you think publishers might face if they were to, you know, pick up another author who a lot of the country and especially people in publishing, you know, find distasteful, um, you know, and, you know, do you think it's sort of a, a worrying precedent? And while everybody we spoke with, I guess, you know, nobody said they thought it amounted to um, censorship. Mm-hmm. The point being there that, you know, it's it's one thing to censor somebody and it's another thing to just to decide not to give somebody a platform. Um, so I think, you know, one person said, you know, not everybody deserves a book deal. Um, you know, right. whether or not everybody deserves to, to speak is a separate issue. So, th- you know, that was said. But interestingly, you know, people did bring up what's happening at um, college campuses as, you know, a concern, at, you know, in terms of what's happening in publishing. And, and again, nobody said, I think... I think book publishing has a an issue with, with with free speech or anything like that. But 
if Simon and Schuster's decision was significantly impacted by authors saying they didn't want to be at a publisher, you know, that's publishing this, you know, someone who says this or someone with this set of ideas, then yeah, I think people are said that is a concern. Um, and it does sort of, it does just raise red flags given um, the, the things that, that people are seeing at places like Berkeley, at places like Middlebury, where protesters, again, you know, and it's it's so far at the college campuses, it's all directed at, at voices on the right, you know, where protesters are basically what start out as theoretically um, protests, just saying, you know, we disagree with somebody and don't think they should be speaking here, turn violent and actually prevent them from speaking mm. and shut them down. So, yeah, and, and it was interesting how hard it was to get people to talk to me. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, because there are imprints, conservative imprints in all the major publishers. Sure. And they've, and they've been publishing conservative books for a while. And as we've seen this year, so many of them uh, have kind of turned up on the top of the bestseller list. Right. I mean, you got, uh, in this week, we've got Bill O'Reilly. So why have they been, why do you think they've been difficult to, they have not been wanting to talk? Well, I think people don't want to talk to me, didn't want to talk about this subject because the industry is so small and whenever it comes to anything that's touchy um you know people don't want to talk about what happened at Simon and Schuster because you know there are only five big publishers right. and I think it's really hard for people they don't want to be perceived as saying anything that could be construed as negative right. uh, you know and so I think that's one of the unfortunate realities about a, a business that is conglomeration has you know changed the industry and so i think people really feel like you know if you it's not if if you work at one place you probably have worked at one of the other places or intend to work at one of the other places so it makes it very difficult i think for people to talk and and i think in talking to people you know nobody wanted to yeah i i think it just comes back to nobody I do think people are hesitant to sort of say how they feel lest it it seem like they um, they're insulting anyone because it is such a small business, and because you know you, if you're if you're an agent, you know yeah. these are your the people you sell books to, and if you're an author, you know these are the people who publish your books, and if you're an editor, these are the these are your bosses and the places right. you work. But um, you know, I do think that's just an unfortunate reality of, of what's happened in the business. Is it's very hard to get people to talk about any sensitive topics. But I was I was somewhat shocked that people were so hesitant and, and wouldn't um, say as much. But um, And you mean specifically about the Yiannopoulos? Yeah, I think about the Yiannopoulos book, but I think just more, in, just in general, it's just saying, sorry, saying to people, like, do you think this is, you know, do you think this is something that is worrisome? Or, do you know, do you find that, yeah, people didn't want to talk yeah. about it. I mean, and, and the Yiannopoulos, but, but it is interesting because, and, and this is what, you know, people talked about. I mean, nobody said that the publishing industry doesn't, you know, publish conservative authors and conservative voices. I mean, clearly they do, as yeah. you pointed out. I mean, some of the biggest bestsellers on the list now yeah. and, you know, over the last few years are conservative books. Um, and making money for publishing houses. You know, right. And publishers are, you know, everyone also said look, publish, publishing is, it's a, it's a business. So publishers do things to make money ultimately. I mean, I, you know, but I think the irony is um, that, despite the fact that these books are selling so well and so many of them sell so well, you know, a number of people said, 
the fact that conservative imprints exist is is sort of a testament to the fact that the industry kind of sets these books aside and sort of says they belong in a special place because the flip side is often liberal authors are just published at general interest imprints. Oh, interesting. Right. So, you know, so, so it's a different case than, than what you see in, um, in fiction, but you know, but people bring this up, I think in other areas of fiction where, you know, you say, why do we, you know, maybe it's, maybe it gets back to the argument of, I think, quote unquote, literary fiction is also pub- is often published at general interest imprints. Right. And genre fiction is sort of siphoned off into these specialized categories. And I was, was going to say there, there are also parallels with the, you know, the, the concept of African-American fiction. For exactly. Example. I mean, so, so, there are- so the, the idea of what's mainstream, quote unquote, um, is is actually pretty narrowly and specifically defined. Right. And and so I mean I think you see that across the board and and I and you know when it comes to politics and and there you know there may be pluses and minuses to this. I think the difference that people pointed to it's known that by and large the book publishing industry again like much of I'd say the New York City media scene the people in the industry lean left with their politics. Um and no Nobody said it means you, you know, you can't sell a book by a conservative. I mean, certainly you can and you do or, or a book that espouses conservative ideas. The difference, they said, is there are fewer places to take it. Um, and I think it touches on the fact that um, if, if there are more liberals working in the industry and certainly not every editor needs to work on a book that espouses ideas they agree with. But I think there is, no matter what kind of book you're publishing, you always want an editor who's really passionate about, you know, about the book. And I think, you know, when it comes to something like politics, if it's, you know, if it's something that really maybe runs even opposite to your, to your mindset as an editor, you know, it might be trickier to publish. So, um, you know, I think you can make arguments that maybe, this could drive up the prices of some conservative books or something. But, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, if you look at some of uh, some major politicians who are Republican politicians, often they're published at, um, you know, some of these conservative imprints. Right. But, you know, Democratic pol- politicians are often published at, again, general interest imprints. Right, right. that's um, true. Yeah. And like, like we just saw the Joe and Joel Biden deal at what, Flatiron. Right. right. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I feel like this is one of those places where publishing really struggles with being in the business of the arts and um, the the conflicts are that you can, if you're coming at this from a business perspective, then you're just like, what's going to make me some money? But if you're coming at this from the perspective of we are in the arts, which is currently, though it has not always been is sort of inherently politicized with things like a, the the current conservative budget trying to eliminate arts funding and things like that. So even from the conservative side, the arts collectively are seen as sort of inherently liberal, uh, and and so that's you know, that's just a very hard balancing act, I think, for any publisher to to contend with. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's true. I think, w- you know, what I wound up talking to people about is not something that's specific to book publishing. I, you know, I think it's something that's specific, again, to the arts, um, you know, and and certainly to the media, if, if you want to clump book publishing on some level into that, th- in, under that umbrella. I mean, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting, um, you know, when you talk about the Annapolis book and, and you think about publishing as as a place that, you know, should really be, should be an industry that always champions, you know, um, the First Amendment. And, and certainly some of the reactions to the 
um, to Trump's election and to the administration from nonprofits, I'd say, in the arts, you know, some of which right. um, are very active in, in book publishing, like um, Penn and other groups, has really been about championing free speech on the one hand, but n- not much has been made ab- about this um, this unusual dichotomy. And, and a lot of right. people, I think, in the industry, you know, we ran a, a soapbox from uh, a publisher at FSG on the children's side, you know, who said to if the book, if Unopolis's book was published, it would really be a blight on the industry. Um, and, you know, certainly a, a fair point of view, but I think a lot of people, especially in publishing, a lot of authors, you know, were coming out saying it was an awful book to publish. And I think few, if any, had actually seen a proposal or, or read the manuscript. Um, well, I mean, Yiannopoulos has done some pretty objectively terrible things. He's outed trans sure. people. You know, like, I, I want to... I want to draw a distinguishing line maybe between him in particular because he is in particular a person who has personally done some pretty awful stuff and the concept of conservative voices. And that's true. I mean, it's interesting. One agent I spoke to said, if anything, you know, he felt conservatives would be relieved that that the book was canceled because they don't want to be clumped in to a category with sure. him. Mm. Yeah. I, I think a lot of like middle right, right. people you yeah. know, find a great deal to disagree with in the, the sort of reactionary um, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi alt-right wing of things. I, I feel like conservative really covers a very broad spectrum and like not everybody on that spectrum wants to be no, and out with the other people on that spectrum. Right. And that was an interesting thing to hear. I mean, because I was asking people, you know, are conservatives worried that they might, you know, that they think, you know, their book might be canceled. And a lot of people said, you know, just the opposite. They don't want to be associated right. with him. And, um, you know, they were cheering the, the book's collapse. Um, and, but I, I think it, you know, I think it just brings up difficult ideas in general, which is, again, is it a question of this person doesn't deserve a platform and therefore shouldn't be published? Or is it a question of, you know, it's, it's, it's a concern if a publisher reacts, be it to the public or be it to its own authors with people saying, we don't want you to publish this person's book because we don't agree with the things they're saying. And, you know, again, I think a lot of people feel it's, the issue isn't one of free speech, that it's an issue of hate speech, right? right. But, um, right. And, yeah, and this is also an industry that publishes books by serial killers. I mean, right. you know, there, there's, there's not traditionally been like a litmus test for how awful a person is before no one will publish it, their book. It, exactly. And I mean, I don't, I think it's a question, you know, is that something people want to be instituting? And, and the fact that we're having this conversation, I, I think it sort of begs the question, is this really so different than what's happening at college campuses? Um, I mean, you know, one one source I I talked to brought up the fact that, um, well, he, there's a quote in the piece. He said it's a, it's, I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but somebody said it's a sort of short journey between sensitivity readers and trigger warnings. Um, and I don't know. Are you guys familiar with sensitivity readers? We, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't personally have a problem with either sensitivity readers or trigger warnings because um, a sensitivity reader is someone who has specialized knowledge. So just like if you're writing about forensics, you consult with someone who does forensics for a living. If you're writing about the lives of transgender people or people of color or anyone um, who's got who who's living in a particular um, subculture, then you consult with someone who has those experiences and can say, yes, this dialogue sounds like me and my friends. No, that's not how I would think of myself when I look at myself in the mirror. 
so a sensitivity reader is just someone with specialized knowledge. There's nothing wrong with that. And trigger warnings are no different from, you know, a PG rating on a film or, you know, a, a content note saying, here's what's in this book. Uh, you know, I think there are lots of things that people use to decide whether they're going to read something before they start to read it. They look at the cover, they look at the blurb, they look at the publisher, uh, you know, they look at what they know about the author. So having some sense of what's in a book, you know, if, if somebody says this book contains explicit scenes of violence, that's a trigger warning. And if you don't want to read a book with explicit scenes of violence, then you don't read that book. Or if you don't want to read it right then, then you don't read it right then. But none of that is censorship. That's letting people make informed decisions. No, I don't, I don't know if it's censorship. I guess I'm not... I mean, I don't know if my opinions matter, ultimately. I'm, I'm reporting on the piece. I mean, I, I think um, trigger warnings are things that, I guess, that worry me in the context of... Again, I mean, it's, it's more in the context of a college campus environment where if we have things sort of telling people this is what's in here and therefore you might not be interested in it. I guess I, I think it's, it's important to be able to read, read something to decide if it's for you or not for you as, as opposed to sort of being told in advance, this might be something that upsets you. And, and I guess in the context of, of education, I think it bleeds into this again. I mean, this, this issue of, what makes somebody uncomfortable all of a sudden is coming up against the ability to to teach ideas and and to have people confront things that I guess do make them uncomfortable and do upset them. I mean, I you know, I think if if all of a sudden, you know, we have trigger warnings on books and and students are saying, "Well, I I don't want to read this text because I think it's going to bother me." I mean, I, I I think that's a. I I think that's worrying. I think I think that's um, probably mostly a straw man. I think that's not a thing that actually happens very much. Um, the people I know who read and use trigger warnings and content notes use them to say, "I'm going to read this later," or "I'm going to brace myself before I read this." Uh, I mean, as an example, there's the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin, uh, which is an incredible book, won the Hugo Award last year. Um, is a book that features a lot of scenes of violence against children. It starts out with a scene of a father killing his own child. And that's something that I warn people about before I recommend the book to them. I say, you know, you know, this is an amazing book, an extraordinary book. I personally felt as a parent and as someone who's very sensitive to scenes like that, that it was worth it to me to read this book. But, you know, you get to make your own decision on that and a lot of people I know say okay thank you for letting me know I'll brace myself this book is worth it um, and I think a lot of students will say you know okay I'll, I'll brace myself my education is worth it or you know I, I want to understand why my professor put this on the syllabus and found it valuable and sometimes they may challenge that sometimes they may say you know honestly I don't think we need to read uh, Lolita, even though it's a classic, because I don't know that we need to be reading classic works about pedophiles. And I think that there are really interesting pedagogic conversations to be had there. And uh, I don't know that it that it harms anyone to go into Lolita knowing what it's about. No, but I don't want to see a trigger warning on Lolita. I mean, it, any more than I want to see a trigger warning on Blood Meridian or something like, you know, I, I mean, 
I think that's something that is better had as, you know, it's a conversation. Somebody can say, hey, Blood Meridian's really violent. And if you're not into scalpings, that might be something you want to skip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's brutal, you know. Unfortunately, I think that's something that you, you it's a conversation you have to have. I, I have to have. I don't want to see a tag on that book saying this book contains very graphic content. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you know, please don't read it. I think that's that's not but that's not what trigger warnings do. And that's not what they say. All, all they are are content notes. They just say, here's here are some things that are in here. They don't tell people what to do or what not to do. No, they don't. But I think their existence then opens the door for people to say, because this says this is in here, it makes me uncomfortable and therefore I don't want to read it. And in the context of a university, what happens What happens when that is the result, whether or not that's the intention? I think people have conversations. Have there been talks in publishing to include trigger notes or trigger warnings on books? Is this... There's some publishers that do, Mm. um, and there are some authors who do individually. And, um, you know, mostly I've seen readers be very appreciative of it. I haven't seen anyone say, you know, this harms my sales. Uh, But I, I only know of small presses that do it routinely. And, um, you know, I, I think readers generally find it a pretty valuable service. I haven't, I haven't seen anyone seeing that it's saying that's tantamount to a press censoring their own work or pushing away their own audience. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in the context of a consumer sphere, I mean, maybe there's value in it, as you say, you know, the same, the same as sort of ratings on movies. Although to be honest, I mean, I wish those didn't exist in, in some way as well. I mean, but I guess it's the, it would be the misuse of trigger warnings if they existed. And then just, I think it brings up things about um, what's happening on college campuses. And if trigger warnings go on a certain kind of book, I mean, what's to stop them from going on every book? Nothing. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I don't know if that's, um, I don't think that's something I'd like to see. Well, I wish we could continue this conversation, (laughs) but uh, we're well over our allotted time. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Valeria Luiselli, author of Tell Me How It Ends. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check this sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 